You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. If you don't have your copy of God's Word with you, I want to encourage you to take a copy of uh, one of the Pew Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. As you're turning and I see these precious little ones uh, head to Children's Church, I'm reminded that next Sunday is our fifth Sunday. And over the last couple of fifth Sundays, we've been utilizing our fifth Sunday as a time that we emphasize kind of a multi generational worship. Uh, we have been having communion uh, on that Sunday, but uh, we have a, a guest speaker, Dr. Adam Greenway, grew up in uh, Frostproof, and he is the dean of the Missions and Evangelism School at Southern Seminary. And I had told him, whenever you're visiting the big city of Frostproof, your family, please let me know. I'd love for you to come and to share with our folks your heart uh, from the Word and Missions. And so it just happened to be that he is going to be in town, and he said, growing up in Frostproof, I've always wanted to preach at First Baptist Avon Park. I said, so now you've got your opportunity. So we are still going to be having a, a multi-generational service. Uh, Joy has been spending a lot of time praying through this and planning, and we're going to have different types of praise teams, and we're going to have uh, different folks in our choir. You're going to see our church from old to young and everywhere in between. Uh, celebrating who we are as the body of Christ. And then Dr. Greenway uh, will be preaching. For those that uh, are going to be involved with the new member class, that is still going on. We will not do the lunch. In previous new member classes, we have had a lunch. We're not going to do a lunch this Sunday with the new member class due to Dr. Greenway being here. Uh, So uh, we will still have the new member class. That meets at 9.30 in my office, which is straight through that door. So if you have signed up for the new member class, we will meet in my office. Instead of doing a lunch, what we will do is just meet two Sundays in a row during uh, the Sunday school hour. And so if you are signed up for the new member class, we'll meet this next Sunday and then the following Sunday, and that will conclude uh, our new member class. All righty. Take your Bible. As we are in John chapter 6, uh, we are at the fourth and the fifth sign. There are seven signs in John's gospel. And so you have to keep reminding ourselves these things. Jesus literally is, is physically God in the flesh and he's walking amongst the people. Now, we forget, we know who Jesus is. As, as we read scripture, we know exactly who he is. They did not. God had sent his son to redeem us, uh, and so he literally is living amongst the people, but they have no idea who he is. 
And so John's gospel uh, gives us seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus does. And what he is doing is he is saying, I am God. And he's performing these miracles, these supernatural things. Uh, there's an event and a thing that is taking place, but those things always point to who Christ really is. And so as we look at this uh, fourth and fifth sign, as you look at what he is doing, the, 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 the argument is, and we saw last week in John 5, the confrontation is beginning. The hatred is beginning. The plot to kill Jesus is beginning. And the irony of this whole situation is, is that they want to kill Christ because he says he's God. He is God. And so with these signs in particular, and even next couple of weeks as we look at the finish of John, conclusion of John chapter 6, I think what Jesus is doing is he is saying this, you, 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 you worship and you seek after the things of Moses that Moses is talking about, and he says, but I am greater than Moses. I am greater than the law. Matt prayed, by grace through faith. You know, it's not the law. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. It's not the old covenant. It's not anything that we can do as we follow the law of Moses. It's about what we have in Christ. And so basically, as we look at John chapter 6, I was thinking about this as I was singing. What a, what a great backdrop to that song. Jesus feeding up to 20,000 people. He is able. I mean, literally, he fed up to 20,000 people. He is able. He walked on water. He is able. And that's all he is saying with these signs. These signs point to something beyond that miracle. They point to me. I am able. Moses was not able. Moses pointed toward he that was able. John the Baptist was not able. He was a, a light shining in the wilderness, pointing the way for Christ. The old covenant and the old law, which these Pharisees followed religiously, is not able. It's only found in Christ. And so as we think about that today, we don't follow the Old Testament law. You don't walk up to a lost person, you know, in your workplace that's lost. And he's not lost because he's following the law. He's lost because he's following the law and not following Christ. He's not an Orthodox Jew as in the company here. But he is lost because he has never received the salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ. Our co-workers may not be Old Testament Jews and worshiping the things of Moses, but our co-workers and our classmates and our family members that have never been born again, they are following after their will and their way and their deceptive and their lostness, and they will not recognize Christ for who he is. I've often said this, that I will never be asked, I shouldn't say never, I probably will never be asked to be on CNN debating religion. You know, they have, they have the panel. Okay, you have the panel of this religion and this religion and this religion, and then you always have the evangelical, the Bible-believing, Christ-honoring Christian, and, and, and that's the scene. They're always attacking us or they're always attacking God at his word for who Christ is. How dare we say this is Christ? That's what the world says. That's all Jesus is answering here. I am Christ. I am able. I am the great I am. 
John chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. I want you to think about these things. Some of you are note takers. Again, by Wednesday of every week, I try to provide my sermon notes. Somebody says, what in the world are your sermon notes? I have a website, pastorjohnbeck.com. All that is is my sermon notes. You get my, my scratching and stuff that I've put together, my, the finished product. And so sometimes I say something on Sunday morning. If you can wait till Wednesday, I think you'll see it on paper and it'll make more sense. For those that have been around for a while, you get that. I, uh, there's a growing list of, of I'm not going to make eye contact. There's a couple of people that sit here and there that are creating words that the pastor makes up. And so one day I'm going to become famous. I'm going to have my own dictionary of words that I've created. You have to listen closely. There will be a few probably in this message. Three things we're going to look at. The feeding the coronation, and the storm. He's preaching to the multitude. He's preaching to the disciples. He's preaching to the masses a message of who he is. And then through that message, he takes those disciples and he says, this is who I am. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. This is the first reference. And John 5 was the first reference of the hatred that the Jews had for him. But here we have the first reference to the multitudes following him. We see now that great crowds are following him. Because they saw the signs that he was doing and the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Some interesting information here is that this miracle, the feeding of the thousand, is the only miracle that is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as we don't have time, but things that I may interject may not be found in John, but you can, as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they may give other details. The only other miracle that all four explicitly teach about, you could say, would be the resurrection. And so you had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which if, you, if you're reading and studying things about the New Testament, those are called the synoptic gospels, the synoptic gospels. And they, they follow the same storyline written at the kind of the same time. And so John is written much later, and John fills in the gap of some of the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not speak about. And so here we have one of the only miracles, the only miracle that is in all four of the gospels explicitly. And John teaches us, now the Passover and the Feast of the Jews was at hand. If you look at John, John mentions the Jewish festivals more than others. This is the, the, the Passover. Well, we also know that the cleansing of the temple was a Passover. And that was in John chapter 2, right? So a year has passed. And you think, well, time's really flying. So it, it doesn't give us every minute detail. So how did this multitude gather a year later? A year later, after Christ is doing the things that he is doing, from the cleansing of the temple, a year later, he has done what he has been doing, and a great multitude is following wherever he was going. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus took the disciples to withdraw to go to the mountain and pray. 
John doesn't tell us that, but the other Gospels do. So what John was doing, what, what Jesus was doing is he was taking the disciples because as the conflict is arising and the hatred toward his is arising and as the multitude gathers, he knows that it's at the, the tip of the spear of spiritual warfare. And he is pulling away to withdraw to the other side of the sea and to go to the mountains to pray. But they follow him. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes in and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. I thought about that this week. That's a a unique picture. Can you imagine being at the Sea of Galilee and and getting out of your boat and and rising up on a mountain and and you're weary and you've got your disciples and you know the cross is just ahead. You know that all that is going to happen with your arrest and burial and resurrection, you know what awaits you and you agonize over what is going to happen to you. But you want to pour your life into these disciples as they approach this day. And you're up on the mountain and you're there alone just so you can be alone to pray. And you look up and you just see thousands of people coming across the, the, the borders and the shore of the lake to come. See, that's what Christ was doing. He was praying and he was seeking the face of the Father. And thousands come. Lifting up his eyes in and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Well, Jesus knew the answer to that. He wanted to see and hear Philip say what Philip was already thinking. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him. He said, 200 denarii would not be enough bread for them to to, to get a little. Verse 8, then one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Isn't that just typical Jesus? Withdrawn to pray and seek the face of the Father with his disciples and to see the multitudes coming. And instead of sending them away so that he could be about his father's business with his disciples, he loved them enough and he said, sit down and I'm going to minister to you. Have the people sit down. Now there was so so much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now if you think about that, that's the men. That's not the, the wife. And the children. It could be up to fifteen to 20,000 people. And Jesus took the loaves and we had given thanks. He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten the fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said to him, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving them that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening had come, his disciples went to the sea. Now, the other Gospels kind of fill in some of the blanks here. Jesus withdrew to the mountain alone to pray. He sent the disciples ahead of them so that he could pray. 
And he got into the boat and he started across the sea of Capernaum and it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. The other gospels teach us who got out of the water and walked toward Christ but Peter. Scripture alludes that Peter walked, and as a, I've heard many a sermon, he, he, he was walking on water as long as his faith held up. And he saw a Savior walking on water in the midst of the storm, and he went to greet him. Verse 21, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately, I, I love that word, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's bow. Lord, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for the lessons you teach us in your word. Teach us this morning. Open up our hearts to the truth of who you are and what it is that you have come to do. And Lord God, what it is that we need to believe. And this we do pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The feeding. It is sign four. If you're keeping track uh, of the signs, the water and the wine, the official son, the paralytic. Now we have the feeding, walking on water. Later on in chapter nine, we'll have the blind man being able to see. And then one of my favorites, uh, John chapter 11, Lazarus being rose from the dead. But here we have the fourth sign, that supernatural sign. It's a, it's a supernatural thing that no one could understand. It has to have been done. There's no excuse. Sometimes things could happen. Well, no, this is, you can't well this. You can't take a little handful of bread and a handful of fish and feed 20,000 people. You know, that's a, that is a supernatural act that is taking place. But it's not about this. The thing that's taking place, it always points toward the cross and what Christ has done. The feeding. Two things I want us to consider as we look at this. We look at John 6, 1 through 13. Notice the hopelessness. Now there's a, there's a picture here, there's a sign here, there's a lesson here. As Jesus is talking about uh, the, the miracle, as he is looking at the multitude, he is thinking as he left off in John chapter 5 that you believe in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe in my word? So what he is trying to get the people to understand is that what Moses proclaimed was pointing toward Jesus Christ. In one sense, Jesus is saying in John chapter 6 that Jesus is greater than Moses, is greater than the law. Think about all all the similarities and all the reference that is going on here. We've got Jesus in feeding with the bread. You have Moses feeding the, the people as they came out of Egypt, the manna. You have Moses parting the water and walking on dry land. You have Jesus walking on top of the water. And there's so many pictures here of what Jesus is doing and saying that I am greater than, than everyone. And so notice the hopelessness. 
just the sheer hopelessness of the situation. They had, they had come out there and they were looking for something. They are following the signs and they get out there and there's a tremendous need. There's a, a tremendous physical need and there's great hopelessness there. And even Jesus asked Philip, well, how are we going to feed them? What's your plan? They were hopeless. They were hopeless people living under Roman bondage and Roman superiority. And the people of Israel were just looking at the Old Testament. And they were looking at the Old Testament. And they were waiting for the promises of the Old Testament to be fulfilled. They were hopeless because they were looking for their very general. They were looking for their Messiah to come that the prophets talked about. They were looking for a deliverance from that Roman oppression. They were looking for victory over that political military might. They were hopeless it's no different than today the world without Jesus Christ is hopeless and it doesn't matter what they follow after it doesn't matter what they believe it doesn't matter what they think is coming the only answer is found in Jesus Christ now think about our culture today I I do want you to I always like for you to come back on Sunday night I do Sunday night, we're going to look at being, I can't think of what I've called the sermon. It's going to be a great sermon. I can't even remember what it is. That's not a good, that's not a good way to, it's something along, I, I'm not good on creative sermon titles. Happy confrontation. Positive criticism. Should, should Christians be confrontational? Should, should Christians point out false things? Jesus did. Who do you think you are healing that man on the Sabbath? Did Jesus go, I'm sorry, you're right. I'm sorry, I should never have done that. I'll I'll just be who you want me to be. No, Jesus is making, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand. And all eternity rests on that line. If Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, then there's no hope for any of us who spend eternity in heaven. If Jesus is not willing to stand up before the, the, the Pharisees and say, I am the truth, I am. These seven signs, these seven things he is saying, I am better than the old, I am better than anything. So going back to that CNN thing, you know, you, you sit there and you're debating over this and debating on that and, and we sit and we look at the world that we live in today with religions and what people believe and it's like, well, I mean, they've got a point, they've got a point, they've got a point. They're, they're, no, it, you know, it's not a point, it's not a option, Jesus is it. He has to be it. I want it to be it. I know it's it. He has to be it. Now, how many of you get frustrated when you turn the news on? I get very frustrated. A lot of things frustrate me. I don't know what's happening to me. I'm getting older. Traffic bothers me more than ever. Sharon said, honey, you used to never, that used to never bother you. A lot of things bother me now. But you know what I want to bother me more now than used to bother me? I want to grow in this bothersomeness. There's another word. There you go. See what I'm saying? Do you know what I want to grow in this? Lostness. 
I, won't, I never want to get to the point that I'm okay with lostness. That I'm okay that you can just believe that and don't believe what Scripture teaches about the joyful hope we have in the gospel. I don't ever want to get to the point I'm satisfied. Well, maybe they are okay. They are never okay without the hope of the gospel and forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. And the minute that we forget that, we've lost we can never hold true to what Jesus, as we read the Gospels, that is all Jesus is saying. You are absolutely hopeless. Notice what took place in the midst of this hopeless. There was a great need. There was a physical need. Through all these signs, though, you always see this. There's a physical thing going on, but there's always a spiritual answer and a spiritual outcome and a spiritual reason. Yes, you're physically going to be hungry. There's a great need, but you're spiritually depraved. You're spiritually hungry. You're spiritually lost. Notice the response. Mark teaches us and the other Gospels teach us as we read this story, just send them away. They came to Jesus and said, hey, just send them away. That's not a bad idea. I mean, could you imagine? Uh, we got 20,000 people that have showed up on Wednesday night for Wednesday night meal and we only feed 50. Now, I got all the confidence in the world in our kitchen ladies, but they're not Jesus Christ. Just send them away. We don't, sorry, sorry. Didn't, wasn't planning on this. Not enough people brought covered dishes. That's what the world says. That's what a lot of times the world says. We don't have an answer. Just go away. Just go away. I don't have any input. I don't, have, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to do. There's a need there. No, we need to never say, just go away. Just go away. Another great outcome, or you could say response, was Philip. We need some money. <laughs> Everybody break out the checkbook. That's the answer. And that, it's not bad. Sending them away is not bad. It's not a, it, but it's wrong in this context. That's, that's just what man and what, that's what naturally comes out of our mind. So we, there's hopelessness. We just send them away. There's hopelessness. We'll do what we can do in our might. Everybody open up their pocketbook and their wallets. How much money do we have? It's not, I mean, it's a pretty logical solution. All right. How much money do we have to feed these people? Because there's not enough money to feed these people. There's never going to be enough money in this 12 of us. It's never going to happen. We can't even get to the store and get back in time. And so we look at the needs and the problems that we have in our world today and we think, what can we do to fix this? That's not the right answer. I don't really know what this response is. It's one of the responses. Andrew just says, hey, there's a boy that's got some fish and some bread. Now, I don't know what he was thinking, but here's the thing about Andrew. You ever notice in Andrew, I wrote this down, John 1, John 12. Andrew's associated with bringing people to Jesus. Anybody ever been involved with a Billy Graham evangelistic crusade and you do Operation Andrew before the crusades? 
Some of us grew up with revival meetings every year, Apparition Andrew, bringing people to Jesus. It's not a bad reputation to have, is it? I'm positive Andrew didn't really know what was going on, but he did have enough sense to say, well, at least I found somebody that's got something. He has a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of things of barley and a, and a few fish. But notice what he did. He took that what was hopeless and pointed them to hope. Now think back to the Exodus, think back to Moses, think back to the, the wandering in the desert. There's so many great things here. Remember the, 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 uh, the, the coming out of the, the wilderness? We would have been great in the wilderness. You know that? Have you ever thought about this? You know I'm to pick on you when I say something like that. We would have been great if we would have been in, in exile and coming to the wilderness in our current culture. Because they were never happy. You know, deliver us from Egypt. We want to go back. Give us food. We're tired of bread. Give us meat. We would have been great. We'd have fit right in, grumbling all the time. We ask Jesus for a we ask for a miracle, and we get the miracle. Then we then we get tired. Then we whine about it. There's so many things here. The, the, the bread came. You remember the story? The bread came. You had to pick the bread up at a certain time and get the bread off. But if you got too much bread, it would go sour and you couldn't do that and God would punish you. And all this bread. And it's just so, it's so funny because these people would have known that. Jesus gives them bread out of nothing. And there's a bunch of bread left over that never gets old. And he says, I tell you what, my bread never goes stale. I'm going to give you 12 basketfuls and you can even take it home with you. Moses' bread got old and soured and ruined all the other bread. And I say, well, how did he do it? I don't know how he did it. I mean, again, I, I think a lot. I think he just, I don't know, think about it. I guess it would be like a, us taking an offering plate at the offering. I don't, I don't, I don't wouldn't this be great, ushers? You, you're back there with the offering plate, and the offering plate's about this size, and, and you've got the money bag, and you just, you just keep taking the offering plate's only that big and that big around, you know. And, and so you just keep upping the money, and, and the ushers are going, wait a minute, where's it? Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, it, I think that's what happened. I think Jesus said, give me, that, give me those fish and give me that bread, and he just prayed over it. And he said, here disciples, the other gospels point this out, here disciples, you take it and you keep distributing. I don't know if they had to, you know, when they get their hands full and keep coming back. But can you imagine that? What that would have looked like? Can you imagine the disciples seeing that? Can you imagine seeing the people seeing that? Jesus took that which was hopeless and he gave people hope. There was a need and he met it. We'll come back to this, the feeding. Secondly, the, the coronation. Now, imagine, can you imagine the masses now? So the food has been distributed. They've eaten to their full. They've got their leftovers. Now, I don't know if the 12 baskets reference the 12 disciples. I mean, could you imagine now? that uh, It doesn't mention this on the boat, but all the disciples have their own basket. Now they're going back to the boat. I don't know. It mentions 12 baskets full. Could you imagine the fury and the, the excitement of what Christ had done? 
And notice there in verse 14, when the people saw that the sign had been done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The coronation. What do we see here? They wanted to make Jesus king, but they had just understood who he was, his kingship or lordship in their eyes. We can never never clarify or determine the lordship of Jesus Christ in our eyes. It is always in his eyes. He's not the great magician. He's not the great provider of our physical needs. He's not uh, the one that just you know, wiggles his nose and waves his wands and all of our sickness goes away and all of our needs are met. He's not going to go into Jerusalem and destroy the Roman Empire. He's not taking back the land for the nation of Israel in a physical, political, or a, a, a need situation. He has come to redeem their sin. triumphant entry he was a great man until they began to beat him and they accused him and they put him on a cross and the multitude turns to a small handful the coronation teaches us this we have to get Jesus right The time was not right, and their Jesus wasn't right. Mark's gospel does a great job. If you've read Mark's gospel, you pick up on this. There are different times in Mark's gospel where he looks at the disciples and he says, I must suffer and die as we head to Jerusalem. It's like little, little segments of the, kind of like on a, when you're taking a trip, and in the middle of the trip, you remind the kids, we're almost there. A couple more stops, and we're almost there. See, in John Mark's gospel, Jesus lets us in on a little bit. He's doing and doing and doing. Hey, don't forget, I must die, but I'll rise again. I must go to the cross. I must go to the cross. See, we have to get Jesus right. It's a spiritual heart problem it's an emotional response but it's a repentive response it's just not about getting my needs met and doing church and and falling in love with Jesus and I'm going to be a spiritual person it's understanding how much he loves us and he died on a cross for our sin and he'll forgive me of that sin. And as I enter into a relationship with him, because everything now is a spiritual relationship, the physical just falls into place. What a lesson for the disciples. The time is not right. Because they haven't gotten me right. And he withdraws again. 
then we have the storm. The, the other gospels say that they sent the disciples away. You go away. I don't know how he got away from 20,000 people. I don't know how he did it, but he got away, and he went on the mountain, and he was praying, and he sent the disciples out. The Sea of Galilee is known for treacherous storms because of where it is situated in that part of the country and the, the demographics and geography and the mountains and, and fierce storms whip in all of a sudden, and they say it's just a, a, a very bad situation to be in. The disciples are there. They've just seen a great miracle take place, and then they have a great storm come upon their life and as you read all the gospels together you realize they were fearing for their life and it was not a great situation and they were afraid when they had rode about three or four miles verse 19 they saw Jesus walking on the sea it's funny, though, because as a pastor, I always get asked this question about many different things, which I enjoy answering. Preacher, I always know when it starts with preacher, I may not like the question. Preacher, what do you think that means? And I always I have a spiritual gift of sarcasm. It's not really a spiritual gift. That's, again, my sarcasm. And I'll always say something like this. Let me tell you what it means. You ready for this? Yes. He walked on water. Well, he couldn't have done that, but he did. You narrow-minded Christians believe that Jesus walked on water. Oh, he did more than walk on water. He raised the dead. He died, and on the third day, came back to life. How about that for a miracle? He took an old Georgia boy like me that was on the Hell Express, and now I'm going to live eternity in heaven. How about that for a miracle? Jesus walked on water. For those that are familiar with my near-drowning experience, I called on the Jesus that walked on water. I said, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm making fun of it. It was not funny then, so I don't have time because we need to go eat lunch, but... I was trying to train for a sprint triathlon and decided since I haven't swam in 20 years, why don't I just swim across Lake Lillian? And I got in the middle of Lake Lillian and my prayer was, I don't want the last thing I see in my life to be the back of the seventh day at Venice Church. <laughs> at, least, at least let me drown in the city park where I can see our steeple on the way to glory. But I'm telling you, when you think you're about to go down and not come back up, I was, saying, I, was, I, I was claiming the Jesus of John 6 to walk on water and take me to shore. I really believe he walked on water. I believe every miracle that the scripture says is an absolute miracle. And if we have to start explaining to the world, listen, I tell people in my life, and I get caught up in it, it's not my job to convince the world of what is the truth. That is God's job. I need to articulate it. I think more than anything, I just need to believe it. I'm not a good arguer. I think I am, but I'm not good at it because I get in the flesh too quick. You really believe Jesus walked on water? I do. That's all I have to believe. I believe it. 
and he walked on water. And I, 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 do you believe Peter walked on water? I, I think if you look at that grammatical structure there and the other guy, I believe he did too. I believe whatever. Jesus did whatever. He walked on water. And he got into the boat. And immediately the calm of the storm, they were on the shore. Two things I want us to think about in this storm. Jesus sends them away so that he can go to the mountain and pray. So think about this. At the storm, he was preparing himself. Like the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that, you know, I have a hard time reading that because I know he's God. And I'm like, well, what do you mean, take this cup from me? What do you mean? You're, you're God. But he's man. And he could never sin, but yet we see his humanity. The confrontation for his life. Would that not stress you out? Have you ever been, could you imagine if, if every Monday I came to work and there was a group of people that were plotting to kill me? How much stress would that bring on my life? Or what if every Sunday when I preached, 20,000 people rallied around me and told me how great I was. But I knew they didn't get it. How dangerous could that be? To miss his mission, to, to lose his direction, to, to, to lose his way, which he never could. But what a great picture of God in the flesh bowing his head and his heart to God the Father. Preparing himself for what it was he needed to do. But then in the storm also, he's preparing the disciples. Now we love to pick on the disciples, don't we? This is what I would say in my spiritual self. Why are they afraid? Man up. Come on. I mean, you just saw 20,000 people fed from nothing. You, you've seen water turned into wine. You've seen the, the nobleman man's son healed. You've seen this take place. I mean, how slow are you? How many miracles do you need to see? So now you're in a little storm and you're afraid? Come on. They sound just like us, don't they? Oh, brother pastor, he's a, oh, he's a good God, a sovereign God, a loving God, a fair God, a righteous God. Oh, I, I love the Lord. And if we just could all just love the Lord. Oh, pastor, oh, my goodness. Something's not right. There's a storm coming. How many of us do that? Raise your hand. In the midst of the storm, who showed up? Jesus did. I wonder when Christ is resurrected at the right hand of the Father, he's crucified, resurrected, and the Spirit has come down. And the church is filled with the Holy Ghost. And they're out doing the Lord's work. By the way, every one of them died a death of a martyr except John. And John... I always say this, John just hung around so he could write Revelation. They all died a martyred death. 
You imagine them living their life for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ as they lived as adults and they did took the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can't tell me that when things got rough, even on their death experiences, they got tough. They said, but you know what? He can walk on water. And if he can deliver us from that, he can deliver us from anything. That's a true statement. The disciples would have been very familiar with the Old Testament in Psalm 107, 28 and following. It says, hey, when you're in distress in the life, when you're in distress of the storm, call out and God will calm the storm. He was preparing the disciples. So we have the feeding, we have the, the coronation, we have the storm. All of these lessons. As we look at all three, I think there are some truths that we can gather from that. There's the feeding, the coronation, the storm. What are some thoughts from this text this morning? Number one, God takes the impossible and makes it possible. We all have, I hope you have these, I have these. I have these people in my mind that were lost. And I think there's nothing I can do to convince them to be saved. I tried. And then one day, they get saved. And you ask them, what happened? And they always say the same thing. They always say the same thing. Same thing I say. God got a hold of my heart. Now it may be circumstances. Have you ever been flat on your back where all you can do is look up? So we got all these little preacher things we say. You may have been flat on your back and you may have been looking up, but we still say, God got a hold of my heart. We look at impossible situations, impossible things that are going on. But we need to remember like that multitude, how are we going to feed that multitude? When we think about the impossible, we know with God all things are possible. Secondly, God uses humble means to accomplish greatness. A little boy? Imagine, imagine what if that would have been a Baptist church? We're a Baptist church. Jesus is over here. We need a special call business meeting. We need to have a couple of committees come together. We've got to make a decision. We've got 20,000 people we need to feed, and we have nothing. Pastor, there's a little boy. Tell the little boy we're having a big boy meeting. As I said, in my house growing up, I still do it from time to time. When your children move back in, the rules don't really change. Sometimes Emily comes into the room and starts talking. I go, big people talk. Go back to your room. Big people talk. Little boy, this is big people talk. It is the humble and the lowly at times that God uses to do great things. I wonder how many people are even sitting in here this morning and you think you don't have that gift and you don't have that ability and you, can, you just don't have what you think it takes to do something great for God. We don't even know the boy's name. 
And look what greatness he accomplished for God. Another great truth. My list was getting very long this morning. Jesus met the initial need, but there was so much more. With Moses, you only can take what you can get and everything else is going to spoil. Jesus said, I tell you what, you come to me with absolutely nothing. And that's the key. You got to come to Jesus and say it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. You are broken. You are downtrodden. You are a sinner in need of forgiveness. You have tried everything that you can try and you have realized it is only Jesus Christ and his blood on that cross and his sacrificial death for your sin that can save you. You come to Christ with absolutely nothing and you'll take home everything. Basketfuls of everything. But we got to come empty-handed. And we have to say, I don't don't know what we're going to do. You bring me that, and I can do great with it. I think that continues on in our process of sanctification. You keep giving him everything. You come to him empty-handed with no impure motives and thoughts and desires, and you just give him you, and he'll take that and do great things. Number four, God uses his followers... To accomplish his will. That hit me in a hard in a good way this week. The other the gospel said that he uses the disciples as part of that miracle. I'm not trying to read something into it that's not there, but I think it's it's good to understand. God did the miracle. Yes, God did it, but he used the disciples to carry that out. What is the great miracle of salvation? How how can they hear? How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless they believe? Unless we tell them. When someone comes saved, they don't say, John, open up my heart. God, open up my heart. I don't need to get the credit for that. I just want to be the one that's sharing the gospel with people so they can hear what God is saying. God's got to do his part. That's obvious. We're going to look at that real clear at the end of John chapter 6. God's God's got to do his part or none of us are going to be saved. All right, disciples, come on up here. We're going to distribute the food. I mean, they're going, what? It's only... What, three and two? There only needs to be five of us. Why do we all need to come? No, I believe they did this. It says that he prayed and he broke the bread and he prayed to heaven and he broke the bread. Let me tell you what it takes. Two things, dependence and obedience. They were depending on Jesus Christ to do what he said he was going to do and then they followed through with obedience. God will use his church to accomplish his will if we will depend on him and we will obey him. The impossible will become the possible if we will trust him enough. This isn't about getting healed and sick and wealthy. It's in the prosperity gospel. It's not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. Number five. From the coronation aspect, we must never forget the true nature of his lordship. 
It's not political, it's not physical, it's not monetary. It is not about him as the person or him meeting a need or I'm going to give Jesus a try or maybe my bills will go away if I start going to church or maybe if I do this, this will happen. Preacher, we're going to start coming to church so our marriage will be better. It's not about any of that. It's about understanding that Jesus Christ is absolute lordship of our life. It is a spiritual thing and when we yield to that, yes, everything else does work out but we got to start there they wanted to make him king but not for the right reasons we got to get his lordship right last couple of statements God put his followers in a situation to test their faith so that they therefore could have greater faith what if everything, I just fed the multitude, I just witnessed that. It would be like being in church on a Sunday morning and I give the invitation and a thousand people are saved. And next Sunday, there's standing room only and they're standing in the streets. And we've got to, we have to get the building and grounds committee in here to take the windows out so that they can hear the proclamation of the word. And thousands of people are getting saved and we've just seen a great miracle. God may be saying this, okay, are you resting in that miracle because of what you and the church did? What if a storm comes later in your life? How are you going to react? Where's that faith then? I want to be put in the storms of life so that I know the only way out is Jesus Christ. Is we're in storms of life. If I'm never sick, if I always have enough money, if everybody always likes me, if everything always goes right all the time, it's about me, it's not about him. But when I fall flat on my face in the storms of life and I call out to Jesus Christ and he always will bend over and pick me up and keep me going, then my faith goes stronger and stronger and stronger. And that way when I see somebody that's going through a, a tough time and I see somebody that's hurt and going through a difficult times I can always point him to Jesus because I know Jesus is always faithful to pick his own up God puts us in storms of life so that our faith can increase and then last it's just kind of a over picture of this for the next couple weeks Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than anything. Jesus is greater than all the stuff out there. Jesus is greater than all of our problems. Jesus is greater than dead religion. Jesus is greater than everything. Imagine him walking out on that water. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I. It is the great I am. Do not be afraid. Let us stand. Lord God, we do thank you that you are the great I am. And that we can know you, that we can trust you, we can follow after you. 
and that we can literally allow you to have your will and your way in my life. But only if and only after we acknowledge our spiritual need, we respond to what it is you are burdening our heart over, we recognize that wonderful gift of grace upon our life and we respond by faith to it. Then and only then do we truly understand you are a king, our righteous king and our redeemer. You feed the multitudes and you do calm the storm, but greater than anything else, you died on a cross for our sins so that those that believe may have life. And Jesus, we thank you for that. And we pray this in your name.